Do you know what are the doctrines of grace? If you are not a Calvinist, you might fumble and try to recall your pastor's sermon on grace. If you are a Calvinist, the doctrines of grace mean something specific and probably means something very meaningful to you. Whether you are a Calvinist or not, today's book has something to offer and today's episode will give you one tidbit to take home. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review The Doctrines of Grace, Rediscovering the Evangelical Gospel by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken. 240 pages published by Crossway in April 2009. It's available in Amazon for $9.99 and it's a free ebook in logos.com for September. R.C. Sproul wrote the foreword. This is how he opened the book. I quote, I have often wondered how my ministry would change if I were to hear a prognosis from my physician that I had a terminal disease and only months or weeks left to live. Would I retire from active ministry to care solely for my own needs? Would I try to continue ministry with a renewed sense of urgency? Would my messages be more bold? I don't know the answers to these questions. But I do know what Jim Boyce did when the above scenario became real to him. From the day he learned he was dying of cancer to his actual demise, the span of time was a mere six weeks, 42 days. The last two of those weeks, he was bedridden and extremely weak. While the virulent disease was sapping his strength daily, Dr. Boyce called upon a reservoir of strength in his own soul, a strength quickened and sustained by the grace of God to continue writing hymns and this present volume. He did not live long enough to see this work completed, but was encouraged by the assurance that his colleague, Dr. Philip Riken, would complete it for him. End quote. Wow! This book was written by a man who called upon a reservoir of strength in the midst of uh, cancer, a strength quickened and sustained by the grace of God. It is fitting that Jim Boyce's uh, last breath was uh, spent writing on the doctrines most dear to his heart. The doctrines of grace are also known by the acronym TULIP, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. And some Calvinists are probably saying it along with me as, uh, ch- as children would when they hear the ABCs. But for some of us, we may not be as familiar with these doctrines and maybe don't even know what the big deal is. Well, um, here to tell us more about it is uh, James Montgomery, Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken. James or Jim Boyce was the senior pastor of Tent Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jim Boyce uh, passed away in 2000, in, in the year 2000, and uh, is still fondly remembered by many within reform circles. They still talk about the good old days when Boyce was around. 
Philip Graham Riken is the current uh, president of Wheaton College and he was the senior minister at Tent Presbyterian Church. Coincidentally, uh, the same church that Boyce was. Maybe that's the reason why um, the two of them got along so well and so well such that uh, Riken finished the work that Boyce started. Now, both men are respected pastors, teachers, and theologians, and they are both well-positioned to write a book on the doctrines of grace. If the foreword by Sproul was a loving eulogy, a good word on what Boyce have done as his work, then the introduction to the book by Riken is a rally cry, almost a battle cry. I quote, Readers will find that this is a polemical polemical book. By this, I mean that it argues for a theological position, Calvinism as opposed, oh sorry, as set over against Arminianism. It is our conviction that evangelicalism is in desperate need of the best kind of Calvinism. It was Dr. Boyce's intention for this book to mount a vigorous defense of Reformed theology while at the same time maintaining the highest standards of Christian charity. Uh, end quote. Now, throughout the book, uh, the line is drawn. Um, I'll give you an example. On election, they summarize the Armenian position as thus. I quote, Therefore, the ultimate cause of salvation is not God's choice of the sinner, but the sinner's choice of God. So they make a clear line uh, saying what it is and what it is not, what the different parties, the different people, especially Arminianism, believe over and against Calvinism. Now, you would think that um, they would start the book with a thorough exposition of Scripture. Uncharacteristically, um, to me, my impression of the two men, they make the pragmatic claim first, they say that Calvinism is good for the church and thus good for the world. The book is divided into three parts. In part one, we have two chapters, and the part one is uh, titled The Doctrines of Grace, and the two chapters are uh, Why Evangelicalism Needs Calvinism and What Calvinism Does in History. Those are the two chapters. Chapter one begins with a quote from B.B. Warfield. The world should realize with increased clearness that evangelicalism stands or falls with Calvinism. End quote. And that is a, <laughs> that's a very big claim. And if there are any non-Calvinists still listening, then um, please uh, stay on because um, what comes next is more palatable. I quote, By evangelicalism, uh, Warfield essentially meant what German Lutherans meant when they first started using the term during the Protestant Reformation. A church founded on the gospel, the good news of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Warfield spoke of Calvinism, he was referring to the Protestant Reformation with its insistence on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And a little bit later in the chapter, uh, I quote, What Warfield was really saying, therefore, is something that every Christian should and must believe. The gospel stands or falls by grace. So that is the summary of, or, uh, 
translation, if we if we prefer a translation of what it means that evangelic evangelicalism uh, stands or falls with Calvinism. Now, it doesn't sidestep the danger, which is that if if the authors uh, Boyce and Riken equate Calvinism with grace, then would rejecting Calvinism mean rejecting grace? <laughs> the chapter continues on. Uh, this is uh, the chapter. The first chapter continues on with the five points of Arminianism, followed by the five points of Calvinism. So they just do a quick summary on both uh, opposing on the, both views, and um, they will do a more in-depth uh, unpacking of the five points of Calvinism in part two of the book. And to answer the question I pose about the Calvinism being equal to uh, grace, um, the authors write, um, I quote, Calvinism presents salvation as the work of the triune God, election by the Father, redemption in the Son, calling by the Spirit. Furthermore, each of these saving acts is directed toward the elect, thereby infallibly securing their salvation. By contrast, Arminianism views salvation as something that God makes possible, but that man makes actual. This is because the saving acts of God are directed toward different persons. The Son's redemption is for humanity in general. The Spirit's calling is only for those who hear the gospel. Narrower still, the Father's election is only for those who believe the gospel. Yet, in none of these cases, redemption, calling, or election, does God actually secure the salvation of even one single sinner. The inevitable result is that rather than depending exclusively on divine grace, salvation depends partly on a human response. So that is, uh, battle lines have been drawn. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, this book uh, goes on eventually to explain what they mean by the five points. But, but before they do that, they, we have chapter 2. And in chapter 2, um, they write, If Calvinism is biblical, then we should expect to discover that the church has flourished whenever the doctrines of grace have been taught and practiced. By contrast, we should expect to discover that wherever and whenever these doctrines have come under assault, the church has suffered spiritual, moral, and social decline. End quote. So what they're saying is that they lay out the evidence from church history. And they bring out Calvin's Geneva, uh, Sin City to God City. They bring out the Puritans that we love, and they were all Calvinists. And they bring out the Great Awakening. They were all Calvinists except for John Wesley. That guy was Armenian. And uh, some of us may say, that, do we have anything more recent? And can we just stop uh, repeating those uh, same stories over and over again? And perhaps even something less uh, churchy, okay? something more, uh, more people in the world can relate to. And they bring out Abraham Kuyper, the theologian come prime minister of Holland, or the Netherlands. And... Um, they managed to, to put together an argument that show that once Calvinism receded, has, um, has receded as the primary theology, then the good times are gone. They write, the pathway from Calvinism to liberalism and even atheism is well-worn. 
and it usually passes through Arminianism. <laughs> if you find that um, their constant um, calling out of Arminianism a bit uh, annoying or perhaps, uh, um, perhaps unfounded, uh, they do give their reasons. They do see that Arminianism is a is uh, is a, is a road, is a path that, as he said just now, can can eventually lead to atheism, whereas Calvinism doesn't. Now, is that fear or that claim true? Well, you have the rest of the book to find out. My problem with chapter two is that whenever people argue from history, the problems that people can pick and choose, and even the word flourishing. They say that if Calvinism is biblical, then the church would have flourished. The problem is that we don't even know what flourishing means. It's, uh, it means something different for different people. The Roman Catholics could say, would say, that everybody was flourishing when they were united until the Protestants, those, those people, came and broke the church into a thousand pieces. Pentecostals and Charismatics would point that flourishing means that uh, you have many, many churches uh, in many, many countries uh, with many, many people, uh, and that is a sign that their theology is relevant, is more true. And some might even point out that the collapse of reform in history is evidence of its innate deficiency. There is something wrong with the reform theology because it just cannot sustain and grow. Now, the thing is that in, uh, Calvinism in history is just the opening uh, shot from this book, just as how non-Christians only think of Christians as gay-hating anti-science bigots and not know that Christians build hospitals, orphanages, and schools from, from the very beginning until today. So in the same way, um, many non-Calvinists only think of Calvinists as in-your-face, uh, we'll put the word kindly, uh, debaters, <laughs> but they're probably more uh, stronger words to describe Calvinists. Uh, and many of them do not know that uh, many of the Puritans are actually Calvinists and that Calvinists have, have given up their lives to bring the gospel of Christ to the lost. They have made a very meaningful impact to the church and to the world. And so the Calvinism in history can be a very useful thing because it might temper one's attitude uh, to Calvinism enough for some of us to hear or read the rest of the book, which is the biblical argument for Calvinism. In part two of the book, we dive into the five points of Calvinism, and they are radical depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, efficacious grace, persevering grace. Okay, so those are the five points of uh, Calvinism. And these chapters are solid, solid presentations of the doctrines of grace, as you would come to expect from Dr. Jim Boyce and Dr. Philip Riken. The, the authors uh, quote scripture, they expound scripture, and most importantly, they know what we are thinking. Uh, we, they can pull up the different scriptures that pops up in our head as we read the arguments, and they address them. They, they take, talk about uh, opposing views coming from scripture. For example, uh, on the Calvinist insistence that salvation is solely God's choice and never man's, some people would argue that the Bible clearly calls people to make a choice. Boyce and Riken know about those verses. They quote Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28, 
which reads, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. They said that's an invitation. And the authors respond to this uh, by way of Augustine versus Pelagius, uh, Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, and Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will, as well as uh, Bible verses that, that uh, support uh, their view. So, getting us familiar with the, with the names, the books, the Bible verses, um, and if you know the topic, you'll be familiar with those things. But if you don't, Boyce and Riken give you good reasons to go and read up further on those things. So, it's great that we have a very qualified um, teachers, which we may, again, I just want to put up front again and again that uh, we may not agree with Calvinism, but uh, because it's such a strongly argued book, I don't want people, readers, to feel put off by it, by the, by the strong tone. I, I just want to tell uh, everybody that I think that it's very well uh, written and they don't ridicule the other side, but they do say very strongly that the other side, uh, Arminianism as a, as a way of thinking about the Bible, is wrong. The careful listener will note that the chapter headings are not tulip. In fact, if you try to read it, it would be rupep, R-U-P-E-P. Now, uh, for uh, limited atonement in this uh, in this uh, five points is uh, now known as particular particular redemption. Uh, in the chapter, they also uh, call it as definite atonement. And in that chapter, the authors comment that uh, Christians balk at the word limited. Okay, they get very scared by the word limited because it seems as if we are limiting God. And a bit tongue-in-cheek, they suggest that if we call it definite atonement, the word definite declares that God had a definite goal when it comes to atonement. And who would like to argue that God has an indefinite goal? So that, that's a bit of wordplay over there. But uh, as you and I know, for myself and also for Four Point Covenants, uh, we will not be satisfied just by a name change. Just by calling it particular redemption or definite atonement doesn't mean anything if the content still suggests that the atonement is limited. Now, I, I will be using this chapter to, as an example from this book because it is the, the L in Tulip is the part that, that I struggle with, that I find the argument for it um, the ones I heard, not to be very convincing. One of the arguments that I've heard says that God, uh, the atonement is limited to the elect, okay? meaning that Christ did not die for, the, uh, for those who are not saved. Okay? That's what limited atonement uh, means. And they say that if limited atonement is true because God will not let, will not allow one drop of Christ's blood go to waste. Therefore, Christ must have only died for the elect. Because, you know, otherwise it would go to waste. Now, when I heard that argument in my mind, I, I think that tells me more about you, the speaker, and not of God. Consider this. God told Moses and the Israelites not to collect manna on a Sunday. Okay? This was during the time of Exodus. But the Israelites did, and the manna spoiled. If it was going to spoil, then God shouldn't God not send it from heaven in the first place? Isn't it going to waste? 
Or a New Testament example is, consider how Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000 and the 7,000 and there were basketfuls of leftovers. Surely, Jesus can, can do this miracle where they would have no leftovers, thus demonstrating his um, ability not to waste or to be perfect in that sense. And we can also consider about the healing that Jesus did in Bethsaida and Capernaum. And he famously also said, Woe, woe to you, because um, you, you, did not, uh, you did not respond to, to what God is speaking. All right? So they did not believe him. And in a way, isn't that a waste of effort? Or could it be that all this waste, a human um, evaluation of it, I mean, the way we see it, perceive it as waste, maybe it is a divine expression of God's bountiful grace and mercy. You know, so, so extravagant is God's grace and mercy. And can we not expect the same for Christ's blood on the cross for the atonement? So that is the way I think. So when people tell me that uh, Christ's blood will not go to waste, I'm not convinced by that. So I come into the book and I can agree with total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I'm quite happy to, to accept, but I don't see why uh, there is a limited atonement. Even Boyce and Riker admit that uh, the majority of Christians and even some Presbyterians and Reform don't accept uh, that atonement will be limited or definite. Now, one of the things I like about this book and one of the things I like about reading um, from people who know what they're talking about is that they are familiar with the argument, so they are able to preempt objections, they are able to put aside the spurious ones. Okay, These, these are not the main things. Don't, don't, don't waste your time here. But instead, this is the main contention. All right? So I like it when people are able to make, that, uh, make it easy for us to understand the real issues. So, for example, early on, the authors uh, clarify one common ground. They say firmly that the blood of Christ was more than sufficient to atone for all the sins of all the people in all the ages of this world. Okay. Hey, I thought that was actually the main contention. Oh, okay, so I think I have not really understood or I have forgotten <laughs> what does limited atonement actually mean. I thought they were arguing that it was not uh, Christ uh, did not do that. The authors then write, okay, I quote, unless a person is a genuine universalist and believes that every individual eventually will be saved, he or she inevitably circumscribes the atonement. Either it is limited in its effects, Christ died for all, but not all get saved, okay, or it is limited in its scope. Christ did not die for all, but all for whom he died will be saved. So that is so end quote. So people should not get hung up on the word limited because the atonement is is limited. I mean, we don't believe that everybody gets saved. So it's either limited in effect or limited in scope. And I thought this was helpful and it helps us get over the hang up with the word limited in the first place. So continuing on in this book, uh, I quote, Lorraine Botner, who has written so many helpful books explaining Reformed theology, has compared the situation to two bridges. One is a very broad bridge, but it only goes halfway across the chasm. 
The other is a narrow bridge, but it spans a divide. When things are put this way, anyone can see that it is far better to have a narrow bridge that actually does the job. This is the reformed position, that the narrow way of the cross reaches all the way to salvation. End quote. Oh man, I really did not like this illustration. I was surprised that the authors make this argument. I was expecting more. First of all, the illustration, as I understand it, about the Armenian position is not that it is a broad bridge that cannot cross the chasm. It is a broad bridge where maybe 10 lanes, uh, there are 10 lanes, but only five cross the chasm. Some do get saved, isn't it? I mean, that's the Armenian position. So I thought the illustration was bad. And to put it like, if, if which one is better? Oh man, I really don't like it as well because we don't say a doctrine is true or false based on what we think is better. Because who cares what you think is better? We care about what is actually true. And if you think that the illustration was very convincing, well, I have other illustrations to sell to you. Then I turn the, next, turn the page, and again, I'm hoping for something, all right? Like I told you, I want to know more about what this limited atonement is and how they argue for it. Then they quote Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon. But Spurgeon doesn't really add to the argument. I'm not even going to quote it over here because he doesn't add anything. He's just saying a very polemic, it's very inspiring, it's very, you know, it's a rallying cry to support, to defend limited atonement over against those people, the naysayers. But there is no substance. So at this point, I was thinking the authors, surely, surely the authors can offer more than a halfway bridge <laughs> and a Spurgeon, an ineffective Spurgeon quote. And that is the thing about this book. A lot of times the authors save the best for last. I don't know why. Maybe there's a good reason for it, to pick up steam, to set up the, the game. I'm not sure. But they do save the best for last. So listen to this. I quote, The real question is not whether the death of Jesus Christ has sufficient value to atone for the sins of the entire world, or whether his death benefits all people in some limited sense, or whether everyone will be saved. The real question concerns the design of the atonement. That is, what did God the Father actually intend to do in sending his son to die for us? End quote. Hmm. I like it when someone tells me what is the real question. I I yearn for that. I want to know what is the real contention because I find that that is the key to unlocking so many conflicts uh, around. People sometimes spend so much time on the peripherals, which really doesn't really add to the argument. So the real question is, what is the design of the atonement? In fact, I'm left thinking, my question is, what do you actually, what do you even mean by what is the design of the atonement? And then he helpfully, again, brilliant teacher, they summarize the three options um, as follows. First, Jesus' death was not an actual atonement, but only something that makes atonement possible. The atonement becomes actual when the sinner repents of his or her sin and believes on Jesus. Okay, so I would say this is the majority view, actually. It, uh, but the way they put it makes it uh, a bit uh, not nice to hear. But yes, that is actually what uh, many people believe. 
The second option is, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sins of God's elect people. Okay, So it's limited in, in scope, with the result that these and only these are delivered from sin's penalty. So Christ only died for these few people, not for all. Again, that's something that many Christians would push back against. We have been taught, we have been catechized in a way that to, to say that Jesus died for everyone. Now, the third option is uh, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sin of all people with the result that all people are saved. No, we don't believe that. We are not universalists. So that's definitely not the option that we want to consider. So we are left to consider uh, the first and second option. And to, is it, does, it, was, does atonement make, make it possible? Make, make, make the Jesus' death make atonement possible? Or does atonement actually do something. And then Boyce turns to how the Bible describes what Jesus did. So the Bible describes what Jesus did in as redemption, as propitiation, as reconciliation, and as atonement. Boyce, after giving all the Bible verses to support wonderful stuff, very convincing stuff, Boyce then concludes with these words. When we put these terms together, looking at their precise meanings, we see that Jesus did not come merely to make salvation possible, but actually to save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation possible. He turned aside God's wrath for each of his elect people forever. He did not come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually reconciled to God those whom the Father had given him. He did not come merely to make atonement for sins possible, but actually to atone for sinners. End quote. This is why I like reading these uh, Reformed theologians. They, they corner you with questions. They push the Bible under your noses. They needle you. Come on, what say you? And they make this grand summary at the end. And um, it makes it very difficult to respond. And I'm, <laughs> it's very difficult to respond. And, and the mind is thinking that, okay, come on. I mean, come on, think, think, think. Because surely there's a reason why I believe <laughs> contrary to what you, what you just put forward. And... And yeah, there are, there are reasons for, for believing otherwise, and they know what those reasons are. The writers, Boyce and Riken, they helpfully tell you, okay, what, what, you, what are the support that you need. They have in this chapter, the limited atonement chapter, they have a section titled The Problem Text. And they give here three categories of the problem text. Uh, problem, passages that seem to teach that God has a will to save everyone, Passages in which it is suggested some people for whom Jesus Christ died will perish. Par uh, passages in which the work of Jesus seems to be intended for the entire world. And they take it, the passage that we would refer to, the passage that we would show to them, and they give us an alternate, plausible interpretation. And they do it in a way without ridiculing people who have a different opinion which I thought was marvellous, all right? So I can respect them without feeling uh, insulted or offended. And uh, some may say that, uh, what are the implications? Well, the implications are that, uh, how can we offer the gospel to everyone? How can we say that Christ died for all when he did not? 
And they say, and they, they, they tell us, okay, so what we say instead is this. What we focus on is that Christ died for sinners to restore them to God. If you believe on Him, you are saved and can know that He has died for you. So the way they frame the, the altar call or the, the evangelical the, uh, message, okay, the, it's, uh, it's worded differently, but it's, they, it's more precise to what the Reformed uh, faith says. All right? So it's not so easy to say that Christ died for all. Instead, they say Christ died for sinners. And you are currently challenged to say that does the Bible actually say Christ died for all? And J.I. Packer, quoted in this book, says no. It has never stated before. But again, we are all welcome. And that's the beauty of the Calvinism or Reform style of teaching. They say something so definite. There is no waffling, waffling about maybe it is or whatever. They say that it is not stated that way. And then we are compelled to check and see whether it is true. All right, And they, they want us to check and, and see that it is true. Now, that is just part two, and I only just described one chapter, one walkthrough on one chapter on one of the five points of Calvinism. There is a part three, and that title, and that is titled Rediscovering God's Grace. If you have ever met an enthusiastic Calvinist, you may have walked away wishing you did not. They can be very difficult. Uh, I quote, the, uh, this is uh, Boyce and uh, Riken saying, uh, the truly reformed are considered narrow in their thinking, parochial in their outlook, and uncharitable in their attitude toward those who disagree. They have a bad reputation, and sadly, perhaps some of it is deserved. There is a combative streak in Calvinism, and whenever the doctrines of grace are divorced from worm Christian piety, people tend to get ornery, argumentative. All right, so ornery, very fancy word from the authors to mean argumentative, uh, difficult. And they argue, I quote again, this ought not to be. In fact, it cannot be, provided that Calvinism is rightly understood. The doctrines of grace help to preserve all that is right and good in the Christian life. Humility, holiness, and thankfulness with a passion for prayer and evangelism. The true Calvinist ought to be the most outstanding Christian, not narrow and unkind, but grounded in God's grace and therefore generous of spirit. And he goes on. Now, the book begins with a survey of Calvinism in history. The book ends with a call to true Calvinism and also uh, a glorious future ahead um, with a question mark there about that glorious future. Now, the, the funny thing about this book, like I said, is that they tend to save their best argument for the end. And that, and that is true even for the whole book. The, the last two chapters are very interesting and, uh, and a good argument to be made. Uh, to, to listen carefully to what they have to say. Um, they tend to save, the authors tend to save the best argument for the end, so don't be too quick to dismiss them, whether it is in a particular chapter or in, a, in the whole book itself. Read until the end. I, um, I want to ask this question, uh, which is that, uh, who is this book for? And uh, this came to my mind, all right? So I was thinking, um, trying to answer the question, who is this book for? And I think that even if you disagree, strongly, vehemently disagree with the Calvinist position, because again, you had the trauma of meeting some Calvinist somewhere. Um, let me put it to you this way. 
You know how in elections, there are candidates who have no chance of winning, but they're really good at rousing voters on a single issue. So much so that those candidates force all the other candidates to respond to that issue. Or consider heresies. If, like August, uh, Augustine versus uh, Pelagius. Okay? If we can guess God's purpose for allowing heresies to happen, I would say heresies force people to respond, to clarify, to defend what they believe. So again, um, maybe... Calvinists can come across as a single issue, always talking about the same thing, harping on the same thing. Maybe Calvinists have gone horribly astray. I wouldn't call it heresy, but maybe they have gone very astray in, in their theology. The thing is that Calvinists, by forcing everyone to, to, to respond to them, when every time they talk about the five uh, points of Calvinism, God's sovereignty, holiness, or in this case, the book says that God's grace now, because they put up this issue so strongly, so forcefully, uh, it forces us to respond. It forces all the other denominations, all the other thinking to uh, Christians to respond to this, uh, to this uh, forceful call. And my thought is, surely God's character is worth thinking about because who God is, is foundational to our worship and Christian life. And so, whether or not you agree or disagree with Calvinism and Reformed theology, the thing is that we are not here to pick a side. I'm not here looking for a football team to support. I'm looking to understand the Bible so that I can know my God in a deeper way. And, and I find that there is something here for all of us to learn and to grapple with, to understand and to adore. So there are things here that I think Christians can really uh, can really enjoy, all right? So wherever you land on the question of Calvinism, I think that you will profit from today's book, The Doctrine of Grace. This is a reading and reader's review of The Doctrines of Grace, um, the Rediscovering the Evangelical Gospel by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken. 240 pages published by Crossway in April 2009. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $9.99 and it's a free book in Logos for September. So it's still September, so please get it before September uh, ends. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.